Hey, Banana Data Podcast listeners. The podcast is currently on a break between seasons, but we don't want to leave you hanging in the meantime. Today, we're bringing forth part two of our special compilation of all our past In English Please segments. If you're less familiar with our content, these In English Please segments are quick explanations of complex data science terms, processes, or phenomena distilled into easy to understand concepts. Think of it as your data science encyclopedia. To kick us off, Will, one of our hosts from season one, is going to explain Spark in English. So today, Will, can you explain to me what Spark is in English, please? Spark is a framework for running computations on really big data using distributed computation. And so when people say big data, typically what they mean by that is data that is hosted on multiple nodes or multiple servers. So that's what we're going to talk about today. When I say it's a framework for running computations on big data, I would imagine our audience will probably wonder, well, what is distributed computation? So distributed computation involves taking a single data set and distributing that or partitioning that over multiple servers, or again, sometimes referred to as nodes, and then running computations on that. So in the old world, in the simple single node world, doing things like finding averages were pretty trivial. So if you wanted to find an average for a particular column, for a particular data set, you would simply sum all the values in that column and divide by the number of rows in that column. I think we're all familiar with that. In the Spark world or in the distributed compute world, what you need to do here is run that same process, the adding up and the dividing, but you need to run it across multiple servers. And then in a new final step, you need to collate those results into one single answer, which is the average of the column of your data set. And this, I think, is why Spark's predecessor was sometimes referred to as MapReduce. Namely, you were mapping a job to multiple servers, and then you were reducing those disparate answers from the multiple servers into one single answer. And so in terms of Spark and how it's improved upon MapReduce, I think there's some wonky details about things like better APIs, and memory usage, and resource managers. But I think we won't get into that right here and now. So just to reiterate, Spark is a really popular framework for running distributed computation on big data, and one that I see a lot with my clients, particularly used in conjunction with Kubernetes. So Trevaney, can you explain Kafka in English, please? And it's not the author, right? Kafka is actually an open source technology that was made at LinkedIn originally. Cool fact. And it is a real-time distributed fault-tolerant messaging service, right? So that's a lot of words. Essentially, Kafka is taking real-time data and writing, tracking, and storing it all at once, right? So when we think about how we store and manage data, a lot of it's happening all at the same time. So I get a big CSV file from so-and-so, and it gets uploaded, and then we're off to the races. With Kafka, you're able to use things that are happening as they're actually being produced. So think about like the finance world. People are buying and selling stocks and it's happening in fractions of seconds. And so you need to be able to record those transactions equally as fast. That's where Kafka comes in. Another thing that's great about Kafka is that it scales horizontally. What that means is that you have lots of computers running the service so that even if one server goes down or something happens, you don't lose everything else. It's very fault tolerant in that way. And so it's an easy way to manage the flow of data in a world where data movement is really fast and sometimes getting even faster. So it's sort of the new version of ETL that's based on streaming. So Will, last week you mentioned reinforcement learning. So I'd love for you to explain reinforcement learning in English, please. Reinforcement learning can also be known as online learning. 
and it's sometimes considered the third learning technique in machine learning. So in addition to unsupervised and supervised learning techniques, which I'm sure many of our listeners are more familiar with. Whereas in supervised learning, we have an associated label of truth for each observation. We don't have such a label in both unsupervised and in reinforcement learning scenarios. So crucially, your reinforcement learning, it works in a context where actions do ultimately receive some feedback. And this feedback is sometimes referred to as a reward function, whereby useful actions, they get high rewards, unproductive actions get low rewards. So consider an example. You know, maybe you're trying to train some little robot mouse to complete a maze. And so if we thought about this like a supervised learning problem, well, first, we need to make a data set where every observation was a path in the maze. And then every path in the maze was either labeled with a success, aka the mouse escaped the maze, or a failure, aka the mouse did not escape the maze. And so this would take a lot of hard work to make some sort of data set like this, given that there's an infinite number of ways that this mouse can move through the maze. So instead, in a reinforcement learning setup, we can just code the mouse to move per some adaptive instructions. That's, you know, where the complication of reinforcement learning algorithms come in. But then after each run, this robo mouse will, using reinforcement learning methods, incorporate the feedback, aka it escaped or not, into its future behavior. So in this way, it's adapting so as to take actions that associate with higher rewards and adapting so as to minimize actions that do not. So in this way, good behavior is reinforced, hence the name. So reinforcement learning methods are commonly used in places like robotics, where feedback, aka the robot fell or not, is easily gained, but also used in other worlds like product recommendations. And faithful listeners may recall that in the past, we referenced Stitch Fix in Multi-Arm Bandits, which is an example of a reinforcement learning algorithm. Will, can you explain to us what is an API? Yeah, API stands for Application Program Interface. And so this term is thrown about, I think, way too often. It kind of has now several convoluted meanings. But the one I want to focus on today is the concept of an API, for example, for machine learning model scoring. So what does this mean? Imagine you're Levi's and you're building a machine learning model to recommend various Levi's products to users when they come onto your site. Seems like a pretty kind of standard machine learning or AI use case. And so you do a bunch of work, you build some machine learning model. We're not going to talk about that right now. But what happens eventually is you have something which is a mathematical model that predicts, given some inputs, this person's going to like this type of gene or not, right? That's kind of the big paradigm here. Data comes in, the model does some thinking, it produces some intelligent output, which is Trevaney will like these genes, Will will like these different genes. And so in this case, what the API is doing is it's running as a particular service that Levi's has, wherein when certain data goes to that API service, other data, namely the model response is returned. So if I log into the website, Levi's presumably knows something about me because I have a Levi's user profile, they take my user profile data they send my data to the API, the model that lives at the API. And in return, the API says, hey, given this data, looks like this is Will's profile. We think Will's going to like these blue genes. And that's really as simply as it is. An API is a service that takes input data, processes it, and returns output data. Trevaney, previously we talked about that Amazon Alexa microwave, right? So Alexa, obviously a lot of the magic of that technology is in speech recognition. But I think a lot of people don't necessarily understand how that all works. So I was wondering or hoping if you could explain speech recognition to me in English, please. Yeah. So speech recognition is actually one of the more complex machine learning use cases for a variety of reasons. But it essentially starts out by taking some kind of audio. So you say, hey, Alexa, 
And that audio gets converted into shorter chunks. And the actual wave, you know, because audio is a wave, gets turned into a digital format, right? A series of numbers that can then be processed to form the underlying structure of the sound, which in turn can be understood as sounds and words, right? So are you with me so far? Yes, that's pretty complicated. You got to take sound, convert it to numbers. And then once you have those numbers, you got to convert numbers to words. Exactly. It is challenging. And so a lot of great research and work has already been done, obviously, because we have things like Google and Amazon Alexa. But essentially taking those sounds and being able to pull out or extract patterns that approximate certain words then allows the next step of the speech recognition to come into play, right? So just getting the data or getting the audio into some sort of numeric data, numeric and word data is the first step. Once you've done that, you can either do it really simply and have like a lookup. So, hey, Alexa, when you hear that, some backend code says, ping, you've called Alexa. Or it could be something far more complicated, like play my favorite music. Well, so now Alexa needs to understand what does play my favorite music mean, right? And how do you add meaning to that? What's the semantic underlying tone of that? And how do you use it? So I know that I didn't go deep into it here, but the main idea with speech recognition is that we're converting audio into a digitized format that can then be either used in a very simple lookup algorithm or in a more complex natural language processing algorithm. Well, can you explain auto encoder neural networks in English, please? Yeah, I can definitely try, Trevani. So uh, we've talked a bit on the podcast previously about neural networks. And so they are kind of what they sound like. They're networks, networks of data. And oftentimes making the Shrek reference, we like to say that neural nets have layers. Like an ogre. Exactly. So the concept of an autoencoder is that we're passing in some data as an input to our neural network layer. And the whole goal of the autoencoder is to take the input and the output is to produce that same input again. So if I pass in a picture of my face as input to the model, I want the model to produce as output a picture of my face. Uh, okay. The key innovation in autoencoders is that the dimensionality of the input is probably pretty high, right? You think about an image, it's going to be all the pixels in the image of my face. All those pixels are going to be passed as an input to the autoencoder model. And then what happens if you envision like a funnel is that that data gets funneled down, it gets shrunk down to a layer of many fewer dimensions in the middle. So it kind of gets squeezed. The squeezing is taking the image of my face and kind of compressing all the data in all those pixels into a small amount of nodes. And then from those small amount of nodes, we then use that information to recreate the image of my entire face. So it's taking input, it's producing the same input as output, but it's kind of shrinking the information in an intermediate step. Uh, and so the reason why this is important, particularly with regards to things like deep fakes, is you can imagine training an autoencoder on many images of my face. So I'm getting a neural network model that's really good at taking images of Will's face, kind of shrinking them down to the key components that we need to know, and then expanding them back out to images of my face. Then the trick here is maybe I get some video recording of Trevaney speaking, and I take the video of Trevaney speaking and I pass it as an input to the Will autoencoder model. And when it takes Trevaney's face as input, but as output, it's trained to produce my face. Now suddenly we have an image that looks like me, speaking as Trevaney was previously speaking. So this is kind of the core concept of how autoencoders work and how they're used, uh, particularly in deepfake models. Trevaney, could you explain to me graph databases, please? 
Yeah. So when we think about a traditional database and the kind of databases that we're used to working with, what we're looking at are flat databases, right? Bunch of tables, basically rectangles of data, all stored somewhere in the cloud. And each rectangle has like a lookup key to the other one. So this table says, hey, this is the list of all the people. And over here is the list of all of their pet names, right? And so we have to do a lookup between the two, the two tables to make sense of it. With graph databases, you don't actually have data stored in a flat relational way. It's actually about the network and I guess you say nodes of information, right? So if I'm looking at maybe like a social network for you, Will, I see that Will is at the center of this network and it's connected to Trevaney and Anna and Jordan. And then each of those people have their own sort of set of people that they're connected to, which could be connected back to you or not. And so this is actually used in, uh, graph databases are used in a lot of different use cases, but one of the big ones is actually fraud detection, right? So when you're looking at people attacking your internet backend, right? Or attacking one of your systems, they're often working in groups, right? So a ping from this bad IP is actually related in a relationship kind of way to another IP or to this user in this specific context. So the graph database is better at organizing and retrieving that complex relationship and network data than a traditional table structure. Now it's time for my favorite part of the show where we explain complex data science topics in plain English. So Trevaney, could you please explain YOLO to me? Okay. Contrary to popular belief, YOLO does not stand for You Only Live Once, the Drake song. In fact, it is You Only Look Once. It is a deep learning algorithm that can train and execute models for image recognition about four times faster than other traditional models. And it does so by only looking at the image one time. And that's where the name You Only Look Once comes from. Essentially, the model is able to see the entire picture and separate objects in the picture into various bounding boxes. It then can run parallel classifications on those many images within the larger image and output predictions. So its main application is in real-time object detection, especially when you have a lot of background noise or uh, many objects in the same frame. It can pretty quickly and efficiently pick out the different parts of an image. So next time you're running your image recognition, Will, what are you going to do? YOLO. We got it. Trevaney, could you please explain to me subpopulation analysis? Yeah, subpopulation is actually a really great tool for mitigating bias inside of our machine learning models. And the idea comes from this question of fairness. When we build a machine learning model, we're often looking at how well does this perform overall? You know, how many cases did it predict correctly or incorrectly? But in terms of subpopulation analysis, what we want to see is whether or not that machine learning model was as effective at predicting the outcome for different subpopulations of our data. If I work at a large credit card company and my task is to detect fraud on new credit card transactions, I might build a model that does really well, you know, 95% accurate. But then in terms of subpopulation analysis, I want to make sure that 
that model performs equally well across the different countries where, you know, our clients use the card. So if I look at the overall model, I see that it performs at a 95% accuracy. But when I test the model for subpopulation analysis, I see that in the UK, this model is only performing with 80% accuracy versus in Brazil, where it's performing with 98% accuracy. So even though overall I'm doing quite well, the subpopulation analysis is telling me that my model is biased against certain groups in my data. So in that sense, subpopulation analysis is really useful in helping you differentiate where a model is doing really well and where it's not so that you can make it equal and fair across all the different subgroups in your data. For Chris's inaugural in English, please, I'm going to ask, Chris, what is regression to the mean in English? So regression to the mean is this phenomenon that is a little bit paradoxical that occurs in a lot of avenues in regular daily life. So imagine you've got a group of students taking an exam. And a lot of those students get a very high score on the first exam. And they come back the next day, they take another exam. You might think that the high performers on one day will perform really well on the next day. But it turns out, more often than not, those students perform worse on the second day. And vice versa. The students who performed low on the first exam come back for the second exam and perform higher. And why is this? Well, the concept here is regression towards the mean or regression more towards an average source. So a score that is you know, towards the middle of the group is more common than the extremes of somebody getting a perfect score or failing. And this occurs a lot in everyday life. So for example, you might put a lot of cameras around an intersection that has a lot of accidents in one month. And the next month, you'll see that the accidents reduced. And similarly, you might not invest as much surveillance in an intersection where there's not as much traffic or crashes. And then the next month, you'll find out that that rate of crashes increased. And it's all just regression to the mean. Trevaney, can you describe the AUC and ROC curve in English, please? The AUC-ROC is a metric used in classification models to tell us how well our model is doing at predicting new data. And it often is seen as a gold standard because it balances between both the true and false positive rates that one expects in, in a classification model. Chris, can you describe GDPR in English, please? So GDPR stands for the General Data Protection Regulation, and that's a mouthful, so most people just stick with GDPR. But what is it? Basically, it represents quite a large change in the European Union's data protection rules that were adopted in April of 2016 and began being enforced in May of 2018. And the new rules affect not only companies operating within the European Union, but also those that store information on European citizens. So the impact has the potential to affect how the whole world thinks about data. The impetus behind this regulation is quite simple. It's to protect our personal information. Nowadays, more and more of our personal information is being collected, stored, even traded by companies and governments, like our gender, race, name, address, our purchases, or even the last place we went out to lunch. Arguably, a lot of that information is sensitive. Under the GDPR, basically speaking, organizations will have to identify lawful reasoning behind why they collect and store this type of information, and moreover, ensure that they're keeping it safe and secure. You might have noticed recently that you're getting a lot of emails or newsletters from various organizations you may have only interacted with a couple of times. 
And that's simply because they're trying to inform your consent on the information they may have stored about you. And they're doing so because there can be serious legal penalties for data misuse. For example, if a company suffers from a data breach, they could be liable to pay a fine of up to 4% of their annual turnover, which could be millions or even billions of dollars. Overall, there are a bunch of principles behind the GDPR that aim to protect us as individuals, but there are still some ongoing debates of what this looks like in the long run. Will companies have to hire more staff to ensure the GDPR rules are met? Will prices go up in order to cover costs? Can we really quantify the price of keeping our personal information safe and ethically handled? All this can be ambiguous and uncomfortable, and while we might not have answers to all these questions right now, one thing is for sure. The GDPR is opening up a serious dialogue about the use of sensitive data by companies and is an attempt to empower individuals to rights that they may not have explicitly had before. CAPTCHA is something that we all have to deal with on the internet, but I think so few people even know, one, what does CAPTCHA even stand for? Mm -hmm. And two, why do I have to do this? What is it really doing underneath to prevent bad actors or allow me through? So just for everyone's, I guess, edification, the term CAPTCHA is actually an acronym for Completely Automated Public Turing Test to Tell Computers and Humans Apart. Big mouthful. Big mouthful. So I'm really (laughs) glad they have this acronym. And it was actually coined in the early 2000s after the start of the invention of CAPTCHA around that time. And so I think it has a lot of really interesting parts to it. But What's really maybe confusing to me is the Turing test part. You know, I think this Mm -hmm. is something we hear about a lot. So before we get started with all of this fun discussion, I'm hoping, Chris, you can explain what is a Turing test in English, please. So Turing test, it's named after uh, Alan Turing, who was a computer scientist, mathematician in the mid-1900s. And he had this question, and it was essentially boiling down to, can a computer talk like a human being. And, you know, he did a lot of research in this realm and he came up with this game. And this game was uh, that there would be a human judge and they would have a text conversation with unseen people, some of which may be computers. And the human judge would evaluate the responses to these questions. And this was the test of whether or not there was a certain level of intelligence. And to pass this test, the computer must be able to replace one of the players in, in terms of uh, answering these questions and get away with the judge not knowing that they were a computer. So Chris, can you describe for me correlation versus causation in plain English? Sure. So correlation versus causation is uh, something you'll hear a lot within statistics and data science. And it means that when two variables or two activities in the world or two actions are associated with one another, that does not necessarily mean that one causes the other. So let me give you an example. Say that you heard somebody claim that if you fall asleep with your shoes on, you're more likely to wake up in the morning and have a headache. And maybe those two actions or outcomes are very much associated with one another, but that does not mean that falling asleep with your shoes on causes you to have a headache. And why might that be? Well, one reason could be that there is uh, what is called a lurking variable, something else that's going on that's related with those two activities. And uh, maybe this person who fell asleep with their shoes on had a very late night of partying and drinking a lot. 
And maybe that's really what's causing them to have a headache in the morning and also causing them to kind of forget to take off their shoes before going to bed. So in this case, the correlation did not imply the causation. So I think it's pretty clear that The Social Dilemma makes a point that we are the product on social media. But I think it would be interesting, Trevaney, if you helped explain to me a little bit more in detail the commodification of human beings and their data in the social media space. In English, please. Let me take the example of Instagram. In Instagram, I log in. I start uploading photos. I start liking people's pictures, following others this, that, and the other. Instagram is able to take the data from my usage, as well as maybe my geolocation or things I add about myself in my profile, like my age or whether or not I'm married, and use that data to create a series of algorithms to predict what do I think I need in my life right now. So for example, I adopted a dog about six months ago. Right around that time when I was looking at a lot of puppy photos on Instagram and looking up lots of uh, shelters and all of that, I actually started getting ads for different products that you can buy for your dog. I want to say like within a week of bringing home my, my dog, I started getting a ton of ads about like this puppy feature or this puppy toy or this or that. And in fact, that became a commodity. My data usage became a commodity that Instagram was able to sell to advertisers and business owners to say, look, here's a prime person to sell your product to give us money, we'll give them an ad about your product, they'll click on your product and you'll make a profit. And so it's one of those very like simple feedback loops where as I provide more information about myself and more usage patterns to the social media network, it's able to then in turn make that a commodity it can sell out to other businesses. And now it's time for that part of the podcast where we explain complex data science concepts in plain English. So, Chris, can you explain latency to me in English, please? Sure. So latency is really just a fancy word for a delay. And when we talk about latency in the data world, it's the delay between the transfer of that data from one place to another. And you can think about latency manifesting in a physical realm, whether it's data on my computer traversing a network and landing in somebody else's computer, or even you can think about latency between physical realms. How long does it take for my information to reach somebody else who's a mile away if I am shouting at them? That delay, we usually want to actually be as small as possible so that we can get things done a lot faster. Thanks, Thanks for explaining, explaining that. that. In English. That's all we've got today in the world of banana data. We'll be back soon with a new host to kick off season five. Until then, subscribe to the Banana Data newsletter and podcast. See you next time.